Well, both uh, history and literature are filled with stories of people who did amazing things and performed great deeds, but were afflicted or even destroyed by some glaring flaw. During the era of the judges, for example, God raised up Samson to deliver His people, and He gave Samson superhuman strength. But Samson tragically had a weakness. He had a weakness for Philistine women, and it led to his downfall. And we have a name for this in our culture. We have a name for this kind of phenomena. We call it having an Achilles heel. According to Greek mythology, Achilles' mother wanted to make him invincible and immortal. So when he was a baby, she dipped him in the river Styx. And wherever the waters of the river touched him, he became invincible. But his mother had to dip him into the river with something. So she held his heel with her thumb and forefinger. And everywhere the waters touched, Achilles, except for where his mother's thumb and forefinger had held onto his heel, became invincible. And eventually, the spoiler alert, look, don't come up to me after the service and say, oh, I was just going to read the Iliad, you spoiled it for me. Like, no, look, this story is over 2,000 years old. I get to tell the ending, okay? Um, uh, The end of the story is that Achilles dies in battle because he's shot by a poison arrow in the heel. And that's where we get the expression Achilles heel from. Now, an Achilles heel has then come to mean uh, some kind of flaw in someone who other displays great strength. Now, in Greek mythology, it was the physical flaw of Achilles, uh, but in our culture, we use it to speak more metaphorically of a weakness of the soul, a flaw in character. And the question I have is this, Why is it that stories where the main character has an Achilles heel, why are those so popular among us? I mean, just look at, if you just look at the movies we create, in most of our movies, especially like the comic book characters, like uh, in the comic book movies, action movies, sci-fi, it's particularly popular to have a character who has an amazing strength but has some fatal flaw. And the question I'm asking is, what makes those stories so uh, popular among us? What, what is it about these stories that move us? And I think the reason we like stories where the main character has an Achilles heel is because they're relatable. We like to flatter ourselves that we are people who have great strength of character, but deep down we know that we have a glaring flaw, a glaring flaw or rather flaws in our souls. And here's the thing, turning to Christ doesn't change that awareness. If anything, it heightens it, right? It heightens our awareness of our character flaws and the flaws in our souls as we learn to confess our sins more honestly. So, what we need then is to grow and to overcome these uh, weaknesses, this weakness of character, this Achilles heel that we all struggle from. And maybe we could say it this way as Christians. In salvation, we receive two great gifts from God. We receive the gift of pardon from the penalty of our sins, but we also receive the gift of being transformed by God's grace to become more and more like Christ. We don't just receive the gift of uh, pardon, or maybe I could say it this way. We don't receive just the grace of pardon and forgiveness. We also receive the grace of transformation. And maybe we could say it this way in terms of our growth in overcoming our weaknesses. Yes, conversion puts us on a pathway to spiritual strength, but that's just the beginning. Growth is necessary. Conversion is to spiritual life what birth is to physical life. 
we celebrate the fact that you've been spiritually born, but now you need to grow. And uh, growing up physically is a process that takes years. In the same way, growing up spiritually is a process that takes years. It isn't overnight. It isn't one and done. It requires years of spiritual nutrition and years of specific activities. And if uh, you're the kind of person who likes to work out at the gym, you know this, that if you're ever trying to like build strength or maintain muscle mass, there are specific exercises for almost every muscle group in the body. But if you don't perform those exercises, you won't grow in strength. Just knowing intellectually how those exercises strengthen your muscles, it's not enough. You 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 have to actually do the exercises. And this morning, what I want to do is address one of the most important spiritual exercises we have for overcoming the weaknesses of our souls. It's an exercise that's particularly valuable for overcoming your own Achilles heel, whatever that may be, and that exercise is prayer. But not generic prayers, not self-centered prayers, not prayers that just uh, are asking for changes in your circumstances, prayers that are like what Paul prays for the Ephesian church. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Ephesians 3, 14. And I want to remind you that back when we were in chapter 1, there was a magnificent prayer from Paul that we studied. Uh, And now, based on what Paul has said about how God is bringing Jews and Gentiles together in the church, based on the wonder of His apostolic ministry and the privilege it is Even if he is stuck in prison, he still considers it this great privilege and honor to be an apostle. And based on the honor of being an apostle, he then offers another prayer. And just like the prayer we studied back in chapter 1, this is a prayer that we have a lot to learn from. There's a lot we can learn about uh, when we look at how Paul prays that we can apply to our own prayer lives. Uh, In Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14, Paul writes this, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God." Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is God's Word to us, and before we study it more in depth, let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, teach us to pray, and teach us how to pray through the example of your apostle, Paul, as we consider now why Paul prayed, and the way he prayed, help us to learn what it means to pray more like the prophets and apostles. Help us to learn to pray more like the prophets and apostles did in their own generations uh, for our own souls, for our loved ones, and for the church. Drive these lessons deep into our hearts in such a way that they shape us and the way we think about ourselves and others and the church. Help us to offer prayers that please you and are effective for your cause. In your transforming name we pray, amen. 
as you read through Paul's New Testament letters, one of the things you'll find is that his prayers for the churches are recorded for us. And these prayers have been inspired and preserved by the Holy Spirit for us to learn from. Now, we've already studied Paul's first prayer back in chapter 1. That prayer was for the illumination of those who read this letter, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to see all that God has done for us in Christ, and not just to hear the words and affirm them as true theological statements, but to be moved by them, to be moved emotionally by all that God has done for us in Christ, to realize the privilege we have of being loved by God the Father and reconciled to Him through His Son. But we come now to Paul's second prayer in the letter, and this prayer is strategic. This is so important that you see this. The location of this prayer in the letter is of strategic importance. Uh, if you remember, uh, this letter is divided roughly into two parts. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul gives us mostly doctrine. He talks about all the promises and privileges that are ours in Christ. Who, if you are in Christ this morning, he talks about who you are in Christ, and that's going to lay a foundation for him to tell us how to live in chapters 4 through 6. So, in chapters 1 through 3, you mostly have doctrine. There's uh, no apostolic commands in chapters 1 through 3 except for one command back in chapter 2 that Gentiles like us, I, we're, I think we're a predominantly Gentile congregation, that Gentiles like us would remember the privilege we have not only of being reconciled to God, but being reconciled to His people through the gospel. That was the one command, but otherwise there was no commands. It's all doctrinal. And, but in, when we get into chapters 4 through 6, what you're going to notice is that Paul is going to give us a lot of instruction on practical matters of daily living, and he's going to give us some straightforward apostolic commands about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And the hinge between the doctrine and the practice is this prayer. And this prayer is not just like a, a, a God-word-focused prayer that becomes sort of a segue or, or transition from the doctrine to the practice. No, 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 no. The prayer shows us how you translate the doctrine into practice. The, pr the prayer shows us how you do that. You see, each one of us has a problem as we follow Christ, and the problem is this. There's a huge gap between the formal theology that we affirm and the functional theology that we live Monday through Saturday. Let me illustrate that. All of us in here who follow Jesus, we would say that we value certain things, but by our actions and words and choices during the week, we show that we don't always value the things that we would claim that we value. There's a gap between the theology we affirm and the theology we actually live out. And one of the ways that we close that gap, according to what Paul says here in this prayer, one of the ways we close that gap is through prayer, through praying for ourselves, praying for our loved ones, praying for our church. Every Christian struggles with this gap, and uh, what we see Paul pray for is going to demonstrate that part of how we close that gap is through prayer. And in that way, Paul's prayer, I think, becomes a very valuable model for our own prayers. And in Paul's prayer here, we find four principles for effective prayer. The first is this, pray according to God's revelation. Pray according to God's revelation. Notice the beginning of verse 14 again. Paul says, for this reason. Now, that's a phrase that Paul uses regularly in his letters to introduce 
a prayer. Back in chapter 1, after talking about all that God has done for us in redemption, Paul used this phrase to launch into a prayer that the Holy Spirit would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see it and to be moved by it and to embrace it and to be changed by the love of God. After explaining how God has made known to him through revelation that he's now bringing Jews and Gentiles together in a new entity called the church, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, and he's about to launch into a prayer, but our translators show us that he basically interrupts himself to go into a digression because at the end of chapter, excuse me, at the end of verse 1, there's a hyphen, and it shows us that Paul is breaking off. And one of the reasons he's breaking off is because he mentioned his imprisonment. And he doesn't want the Ephesians to become discouraged because he's in prison. And so, he spends a whole bunch of verses explaining the privilege of his apostolic ministry and that he doesn't want them to lose heart because his imprisonment has actually uh, aided the, the spread of the gospel and it's actually been for their good. In a roundabout way, it's actually turned out for their good that he's been in prison. And so, there's a digression there, but he was about to pray. And now in chapter 3, verse 14, uh, he uh, uses this same phrase again to launch into a prayer. And, and the prayer is uh, inspired, if you will, but it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But what inspired him to pray this prayer is the fact that he's just rehearsed what a privilege it is to be an apostle. Even if he is in, priv- in prison, he still considers it this amazing privilege he has to be an apostle. And I think that's very instructive for us. Remember, Paul says in another place in his letters, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul is a model for us, which means he doesn't just tell us how to think. He doesn't just tell us based on his apostolic authority what to do. He also provides an example for us in his letters. So, let's look at Paul's example for a moment. When Paul prays in his letters, if you go back and you read Paul's letters, one of the things you'll find is you'll find these paragraphs where Paul is writing something to the church And what he writes in that paragraph, it moves and motivates him to then offer a prayer to God. So, the question is, when you go back and you look at what becomes… just look at the paragraph that that comes before each of Paul's prayers and his letters, and ask yourself the question, what is it that is moving and motivating Paul to pray? And before I answer the question of the common thread that runs through all his prayers, I want to stop and pose the question to you, what is it that most often moves you to prayer? See, for many of us, what prompts us to pray is our circumstances. We're moving through life, we encounter a problem, so we pray. And by the way, I want to say this for the record, there is nothing wrong with that. There are plenty of examples in the Bible of God's people trying to walk with Him through life, encountering a major difficulty or crisis, and being moved to pray to God. It's not wrong that in this fallen world, as we walk through life, we we encounter problems and we pray. We are deeply dependent people on God, and so, of course, circumstances move us to prayer. But you can also find many examples in Scripture of God's people being driven to prayer by encountering God's revelation. For instance, in Psalm 119, uh, the psalmist runs to God in prayer because of what he's been reading. Excuse me. 
because of what he's been reading in the rest of God's revelation. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in Scripture, and so it can be very intimidating, okay? But it is one of the most beautiful psalms in the Psalter, in my opinion. And if you pay attention to what is moving the psalmist to pray, in almost every stanza of that psalm, it has something to do with God's Word and what God has revealed in other portions of Scripture. And and the psalmist is responding to God based on what he's read in God's revelation. One of my favorite prayers in the prophets is Daniel's beautiful prayer in Daniel chapter 9. What moves Daniel to pray in Daniel chapter 9? Well, he's been reading the prophet uh, Jeremiah, and he realizes that Jeremiah prophesied that God's people would be uh, in captivity 70 years in Babylon, and those 70 years are almost up. And Daniel, Daniel does the math. He realizes the captivity is near coming to an end, and so he goes to God in prayer. But he's prompted to offer that gorgeous prayer because of reading the prophet Jeremiah. And I think Paul is doing the same thing here. He's writing to the Ephesians about his apostolic ministry, which is primarily about preaching and bringing to light what God has revealed to the apostles. And after writing about that, he then launches into another prayer. And the way that I think we can apply this and learn from the Apostle Paul is this. Let me urge you to set aside a little time each day for communing with God privately in prayer. But when you do, use the Scriptures before you pray. Why do I say that? Well, because in the past, I've tried to commune with God in prayer uh, without any Scripture, and at times, I've found it to be difficult. Maybe I know that I should pray. I've set this side a time for some focused prayer, uh, but my, I, my heart is cold. I just don't feel like it. Or maybe I've set aside this time for prayer but I don't know what to pray about. Or, or maybe uh, what I would think of praying for are the same kinds of requests I make over and over and over with the same phrases I like to repeat over and over and over, but that's just not inspiring. And here's what I've found. When I open up the Scriptures first and read a portion of Scripture, it warms my cold heart. It gives me things I should be praying for that I never would have thought of on my own if I hadn't consulted Scripture. Uh, and it teaches me to pray. And so, I've just found that for me, prayer flows much more naturally when I spend some time in God's Word first and when I start my prayers by praying back what I learned in that portion of Scripture, by praying that back to God. Uh, Another reason that I like to use Scripture as an aid for my prayer life is because of the the, the examples of prayer that you find that godly men and women offered in the biblical record. Uh, I don't know if you're like this, but I'll confess. Uh, I have noticed that the people in Scripture, they pray differently than I do, and I like their prayers better than mine, right? And so, what you do is whenever you find a prayer, take that prayer and then use it as a template for how you're going to pray to God. Take Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel and use that as a template. All the Psalms, every single one of the Psalms can be used as a prayer to God. Uh, But take the prayers that you find godly men and women praying for, and some of the things they prayed for 
were unique to their moment of history, okay, I understand that. Some prayers, I admit, are a little bit more difficult to use as a template. But just think about them. What's the main idea of the prayer? What's going on in this? Are they praising God? Are they thanking Him? Are they confessing? Uh, are they making a request? If so, what kind of category would this request be in? Take that and learn from the prayers of godly men and women in Scripture. And if you'll do that, here's what ends up happening. You're allowing Scripture to influence the content of what you pray. Uh, it's not wrong to be regularly driven to prayer by your circumstances. We're needy people. We're dependent upon God. But what you also want to do is add Scripture reading to your prayer life uh, so that you're using the Scriptures to prompt you to pray, and you're beginning to pray according to the amazing realities God has revealed through His Word. The second principle we learn from Paul about effective prayer is this, pray with humility. Again, verse 14, Paul writes, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Now, when Paul speaks of bowing his knees before the Father, I take that as a figure of speech. Uh, uh, it's a metonymy, uh, which is… It, basically what that means is you're using part of something bigger to substitute as a way of speaking of the whole. So, when Paul says, I bow my knees, he's saying, when I pray when I pray before the Father. That's what he's saying. And it is a figure of speech, but it points to a principle that's very important because the posture of praying on your knees is a physical expression of humility before God. Now, let's be balanced about this. Let's make sure we're interpreting Scripture correctly. In the Bible, the most common position you find people praying in is standing up. It's not wrong to pray standing. You don't have to always pray on your knees. In fact, in Scripture, we find positive examples of people praying in all kinds of different postures and positions. Uh, most often when we find people praying on their knees in Scripture, it's because it's some kind of special occasion or because they're in some kind of particular distress and they're really emotional about that, and so they pray on their knees. And one of the things that's interesting, Greek has, uh, New Testament Greek has more than one word for uh, bowing the knee, that idea. Uh, and uh, this word that Paul uses here is only used four times in the New Testament. And in two of those other references, it's clearly pointing back to one prophecy in the Old Testament, a prophecy in Isaiah 45. And I actually think Paul is pointing back to that same prophecy here. Uh, and here's the portion of Isaiah 45 that talks about uh, bending the knee. Uh, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and He says this, "'There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I've sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in Yahweh.'" our righteousness and strength. So, the picture of Paul's language here about bowing the knees, what it points back to is bowing the knee in homage to Christ, to God the Father as well, and of uh, swearing allegiance to Him as the sovereign and King of the universe. Peter O'Brien explains it this way, kneeling signified great reverence and submission, especially marking the humble approach of the worshiper who felt his need so keenly that he could not stand upright. So, I take the phrase, I bow my knees uh, as Paul, from Paul as a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech for Paul modeling for us the attitude we should have of submission and humility 
when when we come before God in prayer. And maybe to illustrate this by way of contrast, uh, I could share a story. A a couple of years ago, I was at a very ecumenical prayer meeting where there was a a number of local area pastors. And uh, one of the things that concerned me was that we, we, had a, we had a whole time of prayer together. And one of the things that concerned me was some of the pastors uh, took this tone that was very, to me, it sounded very aggressive, very demanding, in some cases even commanding God. Um, uh, and, and even the way they prayed aggressively, it, it gave the impression that they thought if they just asked in a certain way with the right kinds of words uh, that God was obligated to say yes. But what concerned me even more was that there was a couple of other pastors uh, who thought that it was a sign that they knew God really well to speak to Him in a very casual way as if He was an equal or a pal. I'm dating myself by saying this, but, or as if He was their homeboy. I know, that's like 20 years out of fashion, but that's how, the, that's how they were talking to Him, and it concerned me. Now, certainly, we can come before God the Father uh, with a sense of familiarity. We can cry out to Him, right? Abba, Father, Daddy, it hurts. We can pray to Him that way, but even as we, as we address Him as Father, we want to address Him reverently, humbly. We want to give Him honor and respect as we address Him. And so, I think we can learn from Paul's example, even the figure of speech he uses about bowing the knee, it, give us, it gives us a, a model, an example of making sure that we come before God with humility. Uh, the third principle we learn from Paul's example is to pray according to, to who God has revealed Himself to be. Here Paul prays to God as a loving Father. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. God is the sovereign King of creation, but in salvation He's become our Father. Now, this, this idea, it was revealed in the Old Covenant. In the Old Testament, you can find, the, if you do a word search for the word Father, you'll find that the Hebrew word for Father was used 1,500 times in the Old Testament. Fifteen of those times, or rough, you know, 1% of those times, it's used speaking of God as our Father. So, this idea of God as Father, it's introduced to us in the Old Covenant. But in the New Testament, if you do a word search for the word Father, what you'll find is that the word Father occurs 413 times, and over 240 of those, roughly 60%, refer to God as Father. This is how Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven. And uh, so, what that communicates is this. We used to be enemies of God. We rebelled from Him as King. He was our judge because we had broken His moral law. But according to Ephesians 1.5, in salvation, God has now adopted us into His family as sons and daughters. Uh, He is still our King, but He is also a good, good Father who loves us, and we can come before Him as a loving Father. Uh, I I decided not to do this for the sake of time, but if you just look down through the passage, you'll find more clues about the attributes of God that Paul sees uh, that that inform his prayer, God's power, God's faithfulness. I won't go down through all of them, Uh, but, but he prays. If you pay close attention to the prayer, you'll notice he prays according to who God has revealed Himself to be. And I want to highlight for you, brothers and sisters, that uh, the most important mark of who God is that Paul prays for is God as a good and loving Father. The fourth principle of effective prayer that we learn from Paul here is to pray for spiritual growth. This is really the most important point I I want you to hear this morning, that we need to pray for 
our own spiritual growth, the spiritual growth of our friends and loved ones, the spiritual growth and advancement of our own church. I'm not going to read verses 16 through 19 again. We're going to look at them more in depth next week. But if I were to reread them for you, what you would notice is this. Paul's prayer is all about the spiritual growth of the people in the Ephesians church, Ephesian church. And this addresses the problem of our spiritual Achilles heel. This is the heart of Paul's prayer. It's a prayer for spiritual growth. The priority, if you look at all of Paul's prayers in the New Testament, is spiritual. Now, again, it's not a problem to pray for physical needs. We are dependent on God. We should pray for His provision and protection and help. In fact, we're even commanded to do so by the Lord Jesus when He taught His disciples to pray, right? What did He teach us in the Lord's Prayer? He taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But by far, the greatest number of biblical prayers are about spiritual needs more than physical needs. In fact, the Lord's Prayer itself has six requests that Jesus teaches us to pray, and only one of them is for circumstances. Only one of them is for physical needs. The other five are all about spiritual issues. And uh, we'll work through this next week when we work through verses 16 through 19 in detail. But what I want you to notice is that all of Paul's requests for the Ephesians, they're spiritual. It's that they, the first one is that they'd be strengthened in the inner man through the Holy Spirit. Um, So, not only were all of Paul's requests in this prayer about spiritual priorities, you'll also notice if you read through the whole book that none of Paul's personal prayer requests for himself are about his physical situation or his circumstances being changed. And this is powerfully illustrated for us at the end of the chapter. Turn in your Bible over to Ephesians 6. Turn turn over to Ephesians 6. I want to show you, this is Paul's prayer request for himself. This is what he asks the Ephesians to pray for. And remember, he's writing this letter from imprisonment in Rome, uh, an unjust imprisonment, by the way, uh, in Rome. And this is what he says, Ephesians 6, uh, verse 18. We'll read down through verse 22. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that you also may know my circumstances, how I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, and that he may comfort your hearts." Now, undoubtedly, Tychicus brought news about Paul's physical health, about his legal situation, details that aren't preserved for us here in Ephesians. But what I want you to notice is Paul's primary request. What is the primary thing Paul is asking them to pray for? He's asking them to pray that he would be bold to proclaim the gospel wisely. Now, what's the implication of that? The implication of that is that Paul considers his own timidity in proclaiming the gospel to be a bigger problem that needs to be resolved and that he needs help with than his imprisonment. He considers that to be the bigger issue. He feels a certain kind of imprisonment of his soul that isn't bold as often as it should be to proclaim the gospel, and that's the thing he wants prayer for. 
And the great lesson here for us is this. We tend to pray more about God changing our circumstances than about Him changing us. And the solution to our problem isn't to quit praying about our circumstances, but it's to redouble our efforts to pray that God would sanctify us through the difficulties we face. And that also includes our loved ones. And I know, I know I've used this illustration so many times in the pulpit, but I'm going to repeat myself. I can't help myself. Uh, we often pray for people who are sick to be healed, but we don't often pray for them to run to God and find God to be a rock and a refuge in their hour of trial. We often pray for the man who's between jobs to get a new job, but we don't often pray for him to learn not to fret about money. We'll pray for the parents who have a straying teenager for the teenager to straighten up, but we don't often pray for the parents that they wouldn't become bitter or fearful, that they wouldn't be too passive or too controlling as they try and parent their, their wayward teenage son. Uh, and so often what's going on is we're not praying for the transformational needs or the wisdom needs of the people who are experiencing the trial. And I think Paul corrects that uh, here. He, he teaches us to pray for sanctification for ourselves and our loved ones through the trials that we go through. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones explained it this way to his own congregation when he preached through Ephesians. Christianity is never concerned primarily with the solving of difficulties and problems. The Christian way is dealing with all of life's pro- in dealing with all of life's problems is not in the first place to do anything about them, but to deal with our own spiritual state. In the last analysis, it is not the temptations that meet us in the streets that determine our conduct. It's the heart of the man who faces them. So we need to grow up spiritually by praying more for the spiritual advancement of ourselves and others than for just changed circumstances. That's something we need to add to prayer. This isn't in my notes, but I'll say it anyway. I love, I love Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He took 17 sermons to preach this section, and uh, I promise you I won't do that. I'm not going to follow that example. I'll, I'll get through it a little bit quicker than 17 sermons so that we can get through it uh, uh, by, well before the end of the year. Uh, so, we need, to, we need to grow up in praying spiritually by praying for our own advancement and that of others. Perhaps the most important application of Paul's words here would be this. It's understanding that prayer is essential for our spiritual growth. You see, Paul saw an inseparable link between spiritual growth and prayer. Uh, Look at the text again. I'll just read a section one more time. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. Purpose clause, why am I praying? So that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. The inner man is a reference to the soul, the heart, the mind, as opposed to our physical bodies. God's Word had already come to the Ephesians through the Apostle Paul, but now Paul is praying that all these things he's taught them would become a reality in their lives. And this is where I think the passage could be a paradigm shift for us. I know it is for me. Let me, let me explain. I know that I can't grow, and I, I know you can't grow as I, as I pray for you guys as a pastor. I know that we can't grow 
without God's Word. You can't ignore God's Word and ignore His revelation and ignore what He teaches us and then just pray and grow spiritually. Uh, Peter says it this way, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow. It's obvious to us that we need God's Word to grow. But the implications of Paul's words here are that you can know the Bible sit under good teaching, and even sit under the teaching of an apostle, like Paul himself. The Ephesians sat under the apostle Paul, and yet still not grow. And the reason for that is this. The Bible is not a magic book that you just run your eyes over it, or you you hear it read out loud, and you grow. It doesn't work that way, right? Um, uh, It doesn't change you just by reading the words or just by hearing them. Having biblical knowledge doesn't make you stronger any more than having knowledge about a workout machine makes you stronger when you don't use the machine, right? You can see the sticker on the side that shows you the muscle group it works. You can understand the mechanics of how that works, but if you don't actually do it, you won't grow. The same is true here. The Scriptures do have the power to change you, but you have to combine your knowledge of the Scriptures with prayer in order to make progress. You have to have both. Uh, So, maybe we could sum it up this way. On the one hand, you can't neglect growing in the knowledge of Scriptures and then just pray and expect to grow. That won't work. But on the other hand, you also can't study Scriptures diligently, but neglect prayer and grow. God's Word and praying according to His Word have to be combined in order for you to grow spiritually. So, how then do we apply these principles from the Apostle Paul? Well, first of all, again, pray according to what's revealed by jump-starting your prayer life with Scripture. Read the Scriptures and then pray back what you're learning to God. Allow His Word to inform your agenda in prayer, not just your own strong opinions about the deliverance you want or your own strong opinions about how He should be parenting His other children. Don't let that be all that informs your prayer life, right? Uh, Let His Word inform your prayer life. Pray the Scriptures and use the prayers you find in Scripture as templates for your own so that you grow in praying more effectively. Second, pray with humility. You don't have to assume the posture of praying on your knees physically, but you do need to bow spiritually to God's rule and His will and His wisdom in all things. Uh, You can approach Him honestly, but even as you approach Him honestly, we must do so reverently. He won't be mocked. He won't be talked down to. He won't be put in the dock to be tried by fallen creatures. We don't come to God demanding things from Him. We don't give Him commands as if He would obey us. And we also don't deceive ourselves by thinking that if we just come to Him in prayer through fasting, or we tack the words, for your glory, onto our request, that He's then somehow obligated to answer. He's not going to be manipulated. He's the King, and we treat Him as King, starting with the way we talk to Him in our prayers. Third, pray according to who God has revealed Himself to be by addressing Him as Father. Again, though we address Him reverently, um, we also come to Him. uh, He is a loving Father. He's a good, good Father, but we still come to Him with respect and reverence. We can pray to Him in confidence, Uh, that He hears us and He loves us, uh, and we can pray to Him as as a loving Father. And then finally, pray more for your own spiritual growth and the spiritual growth of others than for just 
changed circumstances. Our God is a healer. It would be compassion-less of us not to pray for the physical healings uh, of those who are sick, but there's an even more important thing than physical healing, and it's the healing of our sin-sick souls. The soul, remember, outlives the body. Sanctification is the need of the moment. This life isn't the destination. It's a preparation for the life to come. And, uh, and so, we need to pray for our own growth and the growth of others, even as we pray that God will bring them out of the difficulty they're in. Uh, and remember this, Bible study isn't enough. It has to be combined with prayers for God to enlighten us and transform us by applying His Word to our hearts in life-changing, life-rearranging ways. I would submit to you that Paul teaches us how to pray in this prayer and how to pray more effectively, and that includes praying for our own spiritual growth. Let's pray.